morning, afternoon, I don't know, whatever time it is and whatever part of the world you're at, folks. So I'm so lucky to be here. But first, before we begin, um, I want to say this because I think it's important to also say it is Coffee with Friends may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals and ethics and values of the misfit Amish. If this live stream is triggering, we would urge you to discontinue watching until you are able to watch as needed and also to seek support with trusted and qualified mental health professionals as needed. With that being said, I am here with Kay Rose. Good morning. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Kay Rose. I am a young mother, a girlfriend, a writer, a coworker. I am here with my book. It's called Building with Dust and Ashes, right? Yeah. So why the name Building with Dust and Ashes? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, in the back, when I wrote about the author, it's mainly because I feel like I, I believe with this experience that I went through, I walked through fire, or that's what I feel like. And I feel like my life literally burned and was destroyed in front of my eyes. And now I'm building it back with the dust and ashes that I was left with. That is where I got the title. That is a powerful title, quite frankly, and a powerful description of why you would name your book something like that. Thank you. So your book is being released March 10th, right? Yes. Where is it going to be available on? On Amazon. Will it be in both print format and Kindle format or only I one it, it will be in the print format first. I am working on the Kindle version. I am thinking about maybe releasing it at the same time. If not, it will be released shortly after. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. So it will be on Amazon. Are you going to do a pre-order uh, time too? I'm hoping to, yes. I'm not exactly sure on that yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to. Well, I can't wait to pre-order my copy because I'm going to pre-order it. And am I correct in saying that your book talks about your experiencing escaping from Nationwide Fellowship and PA Dutch-speaking Mennonites? Yes. Yes. I was born into an Old Order Mennonite home, which would be the Pennsylvania Dutch-speaking Mennonite. Um, some know them as the Joe Wenger, the Horse and Buggy Mennonites. And later on, my parents joined the Nationwide Mennonites, and I left that community, yes. Thank you. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, it was something that I was working on for a long time, but what really, what really um, made my decision was the fact that, not to diss on anybody or anything, but I feel there are a lot of stories out there about the Amish and I feel sometimes the Mennonites are misrepresented. It, people think the Amish and the Mennonites are the same thing and they're wrong. I have honestly ever only read one book that talks about Mennonite trauma or the Mennonite abuse. I feel there needs to be more awareness raised on the Mennonite communities, not just, I mean, the Amish are important, but also the Mennonite communities. So there needs to be so would you say that in some ways you felt invisible? Yes. Yes, definitely. It, it seems, okay, so when I, when I talk to just any random person, you know, about my story, their question is always, so you were Amish. So, and if I try and explain the difference, it still works. Well, it, it's similar to the Amish. It always comes back to the Amish, and I'm like, no, there's a, there's actually a big difference between the Mennonite and the Amish, and ex-Mennonite is my identity, and when that's stripped away, yes, I do feel invisible, and when, when I can't use ex-Mennonite anymore to make my point or to, to tell my story, I'm, it's not me, you know? 
it's it's like a part of you is completely erased. Is that yeah. what you're telling me yeah. what I'm hearing? Yeah. Because you can't take away your Mennonite identity and label it and paint it as Amish without erasing your part of your identity. Because you're also, as you said earlier, you're a mother, you're a girlfriend, you're all of these things, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. These other things too. But thank you for sharing openly why you wrote your book. That is a really important aspect. And I'm here to try to elevate your voice because of that. I think mm -hmm. that it's important that we honor Mennonite voices and call them what they are. Mennonites. Mennonite and Amish theology is not the same. And we've we've known each other for years. And I promise you we've had discussions. <laughs> have, yeah. So, but anyways, back to your book. Um, in this book, like you share several different Mennonite de denominations and explain some of their variations. Why does this matter? Because you can't just go out and say, um, I'm ex-Mennonite. Because to some people, ex-Mennonite will, or Mennonite will mean the horse and buggy Mennonites. Some of them, they will think, oh, they are the Mennonites that drive black cars to church. And then through the week, they may have white and red and any other color, you know. Um, some Mennonites, you can't really even tell that they are different than you and me. There are many, there's there's more different denominations than what I can count and what I can explain. I mean, what I can go into detail with. It is important to know the difference because, so some, some Mennonites will be allowed to use the internet, be allowed to text and all of that. Some of them aren't. So when, when I left, I was not allowed, you know, to use the internet or anything like that. And I had no idea how to go about doing that. And then there's Mennonites who lead their congregations and, they don't have such a struggle leaving because they're already allowed to use the internet. They're already allowed to have connections to the outside world. So it'll be easier. So it is important yep. to know the different, you don't need to know like their, their rules and their guidelines necessarily, but it is important to know that there are a lot of different denominations. And also like back to our earlier conversation, I believe this is when I wasn't following the comments and I really should have been, but first let's, let's start talking about, um, I'm building my life to get back together with the dust and ashes I was left with. That is such a powerful statement. It really is. And then when we were talking, when you were sharing how invisible you felt somebody commented and said that sounds really painful and invalidating and i would have to echo that it does sound yeah. painful almost like you don't exist and i can't imagine the amount of pain people experience when they go through that so thank you for sharing that and somebody else comments and says there's actually a big difference between the amish and mennonite culture yes there is yeah there definitely is and then Another commenter says nobody has red and white cars, hun. Okay, not the um, conservatives, but remember in, you were talking about what I don't know what y'all called them, but like the liberal Mennonites, we called them the liberal Mennonites. They're more like mm -hmm. the institutionalized or the assimilated Mennonites that you can't tell. We have Amish that are assimilated too, and we called them the liberals too, right? They were the liberal yeah. Amish, and they would go to college. Go yeah, ahead. the cornerstone, the cornerstone Mennonites in my area, they would have any color, any color they're allowed to. Their church really doesn't have any guidelines or any rules. The women are supposed to wear dresses to church, and they're supposed to cover their hair when they go to church. But th through the week, they don't do any of that. Um, oh. Actually, my parents have a neighbor of. She's a widow now, but they are cornerstone, and they drove a red minivan. Wow. And then the horning, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then the, then the horning in our area were allowed to have white vehicles through the week. Red, not so much. I have seen burgundy, but not like the real bright red that you're you're not, wearing. Not like me. Or, or like not, my dress. Yeah. Oh oh yeah. 
Oh, that's funny. I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah. like I'm, I'm matching your book cover in some aspects. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Red, red. Definitely. I agree that the conservative Mennonites never, I have never seen a conservative or what they would consider conservative Mennonite, you know, drive red. No, that's unheard of. So it's, it depends on the type of church. Let me make sure mm -hmm. I understand it correctly. It depends on the type of church on whether or not they would be allowed to um, drive a red car or not. Yeah. And the cornerstone, so the cornerstone church in my area, I, I don't know if, okay, so, you know, they're cornerstone in Pennsylvania. I know cornerstone in other areas, but I've never seen Cornerstone like the church in my area. They are, they don't have, they don't have a ministry, you know, in place like the other Mennonite churches. They're just a group of people. They consider themselves um, an independent conservative. I mean, they consider themselves conservative, but they definitely aren't, you know. But when you just, compare them with the conservative Mennonites, the, yeah. the real conservative Mennonites, they're not actually conservative. Yes. They're more liberal in their practice mm -hmm. of life yeah. as they, like their whole culture. Is that what you're, what I'm hearing? Am I hearing yes. that correctly? Yeah. 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 So, you know, even, okay. So even the veils that they would wear, you know, the white hanging veils that some of the Mennonites wear. Okay. So no, they don't wear that. They wear a piece of black cloth around. They put their hair up in a bun, you know, in the back and then they wear a piece of black, black cloth around it. They consider that their veil. On okay. Them. But okay, Rose, I just have to tell you, see, this is much, see sinners too badly. You sin. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Y'all. <laughs> they're, they're they're just too worldly. That's the yeah. translation for that. <laughs> My dad actually wanted to go to that church because, you know, after he was excommunicated, he wanted to go to a church. So he wanted to go to the Cornerstone Church. And my mom was just like, no, never, ever. That is just, it's just too wealthy. Yeah. Too yeah. worldly. Okay. Well, that is really okay. So another commenter says General Conference Mennonites used to be called the Conservative Conference Mennonites. We called those the liberals. Yeah. That is interesting. My, my, my. How we label things. Also, I got my emergency coffee, y'all. Because I'm out of creamer. I had to make an emergency coffee. I've delivery. got my hot chocolate because I don't drink coffee. Which is great. Good for you. Drink your hot chocolate. It's amazing. So I wanted to kind of like showcase like the premise of this book is that Kay Rose was a young Mennonite woman who was trying to escape her community. And she was preyed upon by an ex-Amish man. And as a survivor, she was already navigating the aftermath of sexual abuse and then she was preyed upon by this ex-Amish man which actually added layers to the trauma and in her book she writes about these experiences as her journey from where she started to where she ended up and one of the things that happened is that they had a child together and in her book she writes about him not wanting her to take her baby for medical care. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. No, I don't mind. Um, so my daughter was born a little bit early and she, her immune system was weak. So she was susceptible to all, all the flus, you know, as any other little child is, but more so maybe. And she had she had COVID and RSV when she was two weeks old. And the aftermath of that, of course, she was sick all the time. And he, so first of all, he did not believe in COVID. He said, there's no such thing as COVID. That's just a med medical or a more or less a political scare. And it's, there's, we don't need to seek medical attention for something that the doctors call COVID because it isn't, there's no such thing. But me as a young mom, I was more or less, well, if your child can't breathe, if she's flu, if she's struggling to catch her breath and all of that, 
I don't care if it's COVID or not, you need to go see a doctor. But he would do, he would go to all kinds of extremes to make sure I couldn't do that. And the, there was this one, one time especially that he even went to the extreme of blocking the driveways that I couldn't leave. And when he finally decided, okay, now I was allowed to go and take her to the doctor, he left the door open and it was, you know, winter time, it was cold. And when I asked him, go ahead. Can I ask how old was your baby when, when this happened? That would have been the end of November, right? So she would have been almost. Or was it the beginning of December? beginning of December I think I did write it as the beginning of December I don't have her discharge papers anymore I wish I would have kept them because then I wouldn't have the exact date but she would have been almost three months old okay gotcha so she was born the end of September sorry I just I just wanted to make sure because like she was sick earlier but Mm -hmm. then like all of this is already there and then he blocks you in with his car sorry Mm -hmm. continue yeah okay um he used the excuse later on in court that, well, he helped pay for medication, so it was okay, you know, he justified his actions. But the point is not that he, he paid Go ahead. He blocked you in with his car to prevent you from taking, so where were his car keys? Well, so he worked second, uh, third shift, so he came home in the morning, you know, and he went to bed and he slept with his keys either under his pillow or in his pants pocket or anywhere, you know, on him so that Kind of like you would protect something valuable, you know, you stick it under your pillow or. So, wow. Okay, so continue. Sorry. I just want to make sure that certain things kind of like are like making sense to our listeners too. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking these things. Yeah. And so say even, say he would have left this keys on the kitchen table and I would have decided to move his vehicle on my own I could have left at that moment but then when I came home yes when I came home I had to pay for taking her to the hospital in the first place but say I would have moved his vehicle without asking him or without telling him to do it and then you know say he would have said okay no I'm not moving it and so I would have decided okay I'm gonna go and do it on my own he had his ways of making sure you paid for whatever you did. I'm so not you saying... Ju- Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'm not saying I wouldn't have if I would have had the option of going and moving the vehicle on my own. I'm not saying I wouldn't have. I have, looking back over those two years, I have done things that made matters worse just because I felt I had to do it in the moment. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say is... It's not like it would have all been okay. It's not like, okay, he would have just forgotten that I did that. And he would have been like, okay, well, you had to do it. You paid dearly for taking your kid to the doctor's office. Like, am I, or to see a doctor when they were sick? Am I hearing that correctly? So, so you, because he said COVID wasn't real and your baby was sick and you, sought medical care for your almost three months old baby you Mm -hmm. paid for that yeah and you can feel free to not answer this but can you describe some of the ways that he maybe made you pay for it um yeah so of course it was some of the things that good mennonite and amish women do all the time his laundry have his have his um, meals ready on time, everything like that. But that's just, for me, for myself, at that point in time, that was just my duties, and it was okay. But then there was also, there is such a thing as marital rape. There was also that. Um, He raped me two days after I gave birth. He was, and it was a weekly thing after that. Um, That was one way, if he was angry, he would, yes, he would hit, he would, get physical that way but in the end that's always what it led to and there were days of course that I was not necessarily okay with it but I gave into it because I knew it was one thing that calmed him down at the end 
after we were done, he usually got over it and went back on his daily duties. It was one way to calm him down. But then there were days that I fought because I I just couldn't, like... You're a human being. You don't deserve to be raped two days after you give birth. And you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve to be raped regularly. You didn't deserve to be placed in a position where you were made to feel like you just have to allow him to rape you so he can be kind to you. That is unacceptable. And you deserve better than that. Yeah. That's... Thank you. Something that takes a long time to come to terms with and that, yeah. Yeah. So despite all of those reactions and consequences, you still took your daughter to for medical care because your daughter mattered to you. As a mom, you do what you have to do. It's, it, at, once, once you have a child, I feel it's instinct, it's second nature maybe. So, I, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say my, my mom used to say that once you have a child, you're on, you'll understand. She used to say that after she spanked us. And my, we didn't, as, as children, we were not taken to the doctors unless we were this close to dad. That's what I usually say, because I mean, that's kind of how it was, but now i i want to tell her sometimes well i am a mom now and i don't understand i understand the point of yes fighting for healthcare. i understand the point of fighting for a safe environment and all that but i don't understand some of the other things so i i do feel it's kind of second nature it's what you do to survive it's the reason you work 10 hours a day, five days a week. Week. It's the reason you keep going when you think you can't. I mean, when you, it's your life. When your children have worth and when you have worth and value in life, you're saying it comes as second nature almost to do what you yeah. have to do to survive. Am I hearing yeah. that right? Yeah. 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 Thank you. And I would agree. Like, I've done things. I've worked two jobs. I've worked, like, 60-hour weeks. And matter of fact, sometimes I still do work 60, yeah. 70, sometimes 80-hour weeks. But, you know, I do what I have to. Mm -hmm. We all do in some ways. So what would you say to people who may be in that same situation or to any parent who may be in that kind of situation today where they're placed between an abusive partner who is, in fact, trying to prevent them from seeking medical care for their children or providing a safe environment for their children? Um, one thing I was often told after I left was, why didn't you leave sooner? I would never say that to somebody because you need to be ready. You need to have your plan in place. It's not like you can just pack up your car and leave. It, it doesn't work that way. If you're wanting to leave, you need to do so. You need to, you know, make your plan, plan your, plan Ex everything, you plan your exit discreetly. You can't just, you can't do random Google searches. You can't, you know, you can't do all of that. But once you have a plan in place, once you, you know, like reach out to your local, agencies like shelters, um, victim services in your local county and all of that. But you need to have a plan in place and then with the help of local agencies, you can leave. And he's going to make all kinds of threats. They always do. You need to take those you need to take those seriously yes it's not bullshit it's it's not they will but you also need to trust in yourself you need to believe okay i can do this because not to scare anyone and not to make it sound terrible it is terrible but i mean you know kindly no matter if you leave no matter if you stay it is dangerous 
But once you leave, once you break away from that, and once you get the help you need, it it will be okay. You just well. And so go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Well, what I was going to say is, so what I'm actually trying to say is, it, it's okay to leave. It's okay to be on your own, because you won't actually be on your own if you have people around you who will help. You'll find your support group after you leave, maybe even before you leave. I mean, for me, it was after I left because before I left, he monitored messages and he cut all of that off. But after I left, I did still know who to reach out to and I just did, did still have a support group. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're trying to say is that people can leave, but <laughs> staying and leaving are both dangerous. Yes. And it is terrible, right? But I think, like, one of the things that I really want to kind of, like, put out there for people when she's talking about you can't do random Google searches, there are perpetrators of abuse who literally sit there and monitor your internet usage, your phone calls. They monitor everybody you talk to. They monitor everybody you email. Everybody, every single interaction you have with people is monitored. Mm -hmm. And when that is the case, it is very difficult to feel like you are even worthy of a safe environment, let alone escape that and seek out support and resources. Yeah. Is so that I correct? Had, yes, it is. So I had an advocate appointed through the county right after I left the Mennonite community. And so we talked, you know, like almost weekly until after him and I got together, my ex and I were together, he cut that off. And I had a therapist. He didn't allow me to talk to her anymore. I had um, my sister. He allowed me to talk to her, but every time after I talked to her, it was, you know, like he wanted to know every word that we talked about. It was, yeah. So one of our commenters points out that even a second burner phone for escape is difficult to keep secret and in private for your escape. That's where they monitor every single thing you have. Mm -hmm. And see, a, a second a second burner phone, you need money to buy that and to keep it in service. If you aren't allowed to have a job and if your bank account is monitored, it in that sense, it would be nice if somebody outside, if there would always be a person outside that could help you. Mm -hmm. Like, but that's that's in an ideal situation, and that's maybe a fairy tale story for most situations to have that. Well, I even know of cases and situations where people had a secure. Um, folder on their phone and I would suggest don't use your your biometrics to secure your secure folder on your phone because abusers have been known perpetrators of abuse have been known to actually force the survivor to open that secure folder with their plans to escape and they paid for it dearly yeah, and if you have names of who's helping you in some situations, they'll also pay for helping you Uh huh. In, in a lot of situations, actually. Yeah, that's a very important point. So when you talk about local resources and you're talking about shelters and advocates, like, so are you talking about, like, domestic violence agencies and... Yes. Like, in my area... Both counties that I was in, each county had a victim witness services in the courthouse. Those can help you out a lot. Like if you can get in touch with an advocate from the victim witness services, um, they can point you to local shelters where you can get an advocate through the shelter. Um, in my area, I know of four shelters in two different counties, all within like a 50 mile radius. Um, 
Doesn't Wisconsin also have like crisis intervention centers? And um, yes, like I think the North Central Healthcare—that's the local um, healthcare, mental healthcare um, facility. I know when I was there, they gave me a long list of a whole bunch of different agencies, phone numbers, etc., for places in the area. Gotcha. So even healthcare facilities can help you connect with resources mm -hmm. if you're in this kind of situation. Yeah. Okay. That's that's really important to highlight and and to know. And another question I had is so like because you write so openly about your experiences and how this man like preyed on you. I I do have a question. Do you think your Mennonite upbringing had an effect on how you navigated that? had to go yeah, there definitely definitely um so the the community i grew up in everybody was good nobody could do any wrong you know you always expect the best in people all of that of course they were talking about other mennonites and amish or other plain people let's say it that way because then everybody on the outside of that was bad so when i left with my upbringing, my first thought was like, okay, so he's ex-Amish, he must be one of the good people. It was a bit of familiarity or whatever that word is. It felt familiar. <laughs> yes, it felt familiar. So... Did he also speak PA Dutch? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's all we talked. And that was another thing that was... Yeah. But you know, if they would, if they would realize that, or if they would recognize that people, that all people are human, that they are human, that there are, and if they would bring their children up and teach them. Another thing, if you could just, saying this to my former community, if you could just please, please be a little bit more open with the human body, about the human body, about your, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Maybe if you would talk about sex, maybe if you would talk about mental health, maybe if you would talk about mental health goes along with all the mind games that they play with, play with you. But maybe if that would be a an open conversation. My thought, I mean, my, my, my idea when I met him, when we started talking was just, okay, so he's one of the good people. I, I feel safe with him because he grew up in an Amish community. Like I write in my book, plain people are humans. They make mistakes, they commit crimes, they do all of that. If the plain people would talk about that, and if they would teach their children, their young folks, that you know we all make mistakes. Their mistakes, when my parents talked about Mennonites making mistakes, it was small white lies. It was running late for church. It was paying a bill past to it was small things like that. They never made big mistakes. They never did something wrong. So if we would just be okay with the fact that we're humans, that we make bigger mistakes, that we aren't all good people, maybe leaving the community and understanding that would raise more red flags when entering a relationship of any kind. Does that make sense? Or even, could it also be that even if they had an open conversation about the fact that people are humans and groups of people, you always get the people that commit crimes. Nobody is exempt from it. Utopia doesn't exist because that, quite frankly, feels like they elevated Amish to a status and even Mennonites to a status where they can't commit any crimes. That's how that, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. And so for you, you felt like, okay, so he's from a good community. He's mm -hmm. from a good place. And it invoked a sense of safety for you because, let me ask you this, like, didn't you tell me at one point in time something about um, 
being taught that men in the community don't sexually assault or rape people. It's the English people that do that? Yes. We were taught that, like, my mom had a few books up in the attic that we were not allowed to read until she had the talk with us. The talk was, you're going to bleed once a month. That's it. But anyway, <laughs> that's another story. Um, <laughs> once we had that talk, we were allowed to read those books. And it was all, all it was just a handful of books, but all the books were... So the one book was about um, uh, a young guy who raped his sisters and killed the entire family afterwards, and he burned the house down. But anyway, it was books, you know, like that. Wait, how old were you reading that? Oh, yeah, I wasn't supposed to read it. My mom did not have to talk with me yet. But my sister went oh. up there regularly, and she read them. So one day I was like, I want to see what's up there. So when my mom was taking a nap one afternoon, I went up there and I read it. Oh, I was so you were that. curious. Yeah. But still, was, how old were you reading that? I was 10. But, see, I had no idea. I had no idea what it meant. He raped his sisters, and he shot them, and he burned the house down. Okay, so... I did not know what the word meant, so it didn't really... I mean, yes, I was like, it was something bad. And... Okay. But... So so I had the idea, you know, all of her books were of worldly heinous crimes. So, okay, so I had the idea, okay, you know... Oh, another one was the nickel mine school shooting that she had. But... Oh. And I also read that one, and yes, it happened to Amish, but it was a worldly man who did it. So we're still okay. I'm still okay going to church. I'm still okay being around these men. Okay. I just Amish. need to be more careful when I go to town, you know. Uh, right, because Amish people don't commit crimes is, is what you were taught. Yeah. That's what you're mm -hmm. telling me. Yes. Wow. And even if it wasn't explicitly said, it was implied by the content of books and, and media in your home. Yes, yes. I, okay. can't, I can't remember that my mom actually ever used the words, you know, that plain men don't assault young women or anything like that. I don't remember her ever using those words, but they were safe people. Like, it was okay for me to work at the greenhouse alone because he's a member of the church. We're okay. Oh, okay. So, so you, know, you don't necessarily have to say he won't touch you. All you have to say is he's a safe person. What, is, what else is she saying? You know, she's implying the fact that he would never right. do it. Right. Because he's a member of the church. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So I, I want to kind of like, pivot here and go into like which thank you for the big like discussion on like the topics i i have to like ask this before we move on and pivot and that is like do you remember the titles of any of the books the nickel mine school shooting is the only one that i remember like that one was okay the nickel mine school shooting i think it was written on but uh, you know, on the viewpoint of one of the survivors, like it seemed like she was telling the story. But then Eyes of the Tailless Animals was one of them. But that wasn't an American-based story. That was of a young woman in North Korea, I think, or something. Yeah. And then um, the other one, I would need to do a Google search on that one, but. Yeah, okay. Well, that's fine. I was just thinking about like book club discussions mm -hmm. could be interesting. But one of our listeners says also that keeps you from reaching out for help from the others because we are led to believe that the others are bad. Yeah. Thank you for that. That is a very valid point. And another listener says implied by stories that the people in the world were more scary than Mennonite people. Right. I had the same impression, but I was also told to watch out for young folks who didn't drive safely, etc. 
Okay. Well, if somebody yeah. doesn't drive safely, okay, watch out for them. We have heard. And now let's pivot into our, our last question that I have for you about your book. So in the book, you kind of talk about suicidal ideations. Like, do you want to talk about like what led to that and what happened? Sure. So I was always told that um, if you're a good Christian, you won't have mental illnesses. That was their words. I'm but sorry. What? <laughs> Can, can we just stay with that statement for a minute? If you're a good Christian, you won't have mental illness. How is being a good Christian going to prevent you from having mental illness? It's Especially. Kind of like, it's kind of like saying, okay, if you're a good enough Christian, you won't have a heart attack. Or if you're a good enough Christian, you won't break your arm. You know? Okay. Fair Maybe enough. if I would have prayed before I went to work, I wouldn't have fractured my rib. Let's go there. But anyway. Um, when I was, after I was sexually assaulted, the six months I worked at the greenhouse when I was still in the Mennonite community, that is, I would say that was kind of like the turning point in my, um, mental health. I struggled with depression. I struggled with suicidal ideations, but that was as a young teenager and I didn't get help for it until after my daughter was born and I left that relationship. Um, I still, I still live with that, but that's okay. Um, after last, uh, about a year ago, um, I got, I got real help for it, I would say. Can you tell me why you say it's real help? Because I don't think you can call um, having a minister's meeting and praying with the minister and his wife real help. They don't know how to help you. Why I mean, don't they know how to help you? Well, number one, they, they don't have the training. They aren't therapists. They aren't psychiatrists. They can't diagnose you. They can't prescribe medication if need be. They can't do any of that. Their help is if you pray more, if you read the Bible more, etc., you know, it'll go away. And so what kind I, of education do these ministers have? An eighth grade education. They know how to read and write and do math, maybe. And that's... Do they have any kind of health or science or psychology classes? No. No, they have... I mean, of course, they have science in school, but science has nothing to do with the human body. They talk about, um, I don't, I don't even know. It's just a bunch of random bullshit. Honestly. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I, I wanted to, to make sure that we, we like kind of cover the background of their education. So what I'd ask you, what qualifies them to provide support for trauma survivors? They feel what? they have they feel they're qualified because they have um, they were ordained by the church to be the minister. So they had. Did I just roll my eyes out loud? I apologize. Um, Let me fix my face. You're okay. 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 <laughs> Continue. So then you go to maybe what you call real help, which is yeah. somebody well, who, can you describe that? Well, um, I was at North Central Healthcare, which that is a local health uh, mental health care hospital. I was there for, in other words, a 72-hour cycle. Um, I wouldn't really say, you know, over the time I was there, it was over a weekend, so the doctors were out and all of that. So I, I wouldn't really say, you know, that they diagnosed me or anything like that while I was there. Or I didn't do any medication, but I slept. And that was pretty much all I needed at that point in time, you know. I... I remember the first day I was there after, um, which that'll be talked about in my book, but anyway, um, after the officer dropped me off there, you know, I was, I went through the intake and everything like that. And then I went to bed and I slept and I slept all day that day. Well, I got up to eat dinner, but 
then I went back to bed and Sunday I slept all day and Monday but after I was released on Monday I had a doctor you know um he he diagnosed me he said that I have depression and anxiety and he said I would need to stay longer but he thinks yeah, I have PTSD as well but then he referred me to a a therapist that I was supposed to see twice a month for the next six months. It was a court order that I needed to see her to be released, but I'm still seeing her. And yeah, that was the real help that I needed, you know. Um, yeah. They did prescribe medication, but I'm allowed to take the medication as I feel needed. So it's not necessarily, you know, that I take a certain amount of pills per day. It's on me. Yeah. Can I, can I ask several questions? So one, like one of our listeners did ask, is it okay to mention the death threats the perpetrator made? Because do you think that the death threats had anything to do with feeling suicidal? Definitely. Because, you know, one thing that he used to say is he never threatened to kill me. I'm trying to think back. I don't think he ever threatened to kill me, but he threatened to kill himself. And the way I was raised, he said, you know, like if I would tell anybody what he did, he would kill himself. So the way I was raised and the way I understood that was that that would make me a murderer. So, okay, so say I would have told someone, I thought, well, then I might as well kill myself as well because I don't want to go through life having his blood blood on my hand. So that is really f fucking awful, okay? That is fucking awful. Yes, it is. So, anyways, continue. I just wanted you to know that's awful. <laughs> well, I don't have a lot more to say about that because, yes, it is awful. and it's, But it is something that, you know, it's a mind game. It is. It wears it, you down and it makes you not sure, you know, what to think anymore or how to think or what to believe or... You know, it just—it feels like your—it feels like your mind is scrambled eggs. That's all I can think about. That actually makes a lot of logical sense to me, because that is exactly what it feels like. That's like a good analogy of like what it really feels like when somebody is playing mind games. When they're playing what the army calls fuck fuck games, they they play these mm -hmm. games that are like they they make you doubt your reality they make you question what you actually know they gaslight you into believing that you are wrong for even having these thoughts or for even thinking or talking like mm -hmm. yep it's so dysregulating you can't begin to like function from a baseline capacity of where humans normally are like yeah totally makes logical th sense. Thank you for that. But I am um, about to wrap this up. So I wanted to ask you if you had one last message you would say to anybody listening to this. Well, I do have one thing that I write about in my book, and that is in my victim impact statement that I gave at court when the Mennonite guy was sentenced, which was not justice but anyway um in in my victim impact statement i told the judge that if i would have known everything that i was going to lose i don't think i would have gone through with the report i mean it was reported by an outside by a third party and so once a report like that is made you know you don't really have a lot you can do i mean you can refuse to cooperate but they will still investigate the state of wisconsin will still investigate the state yes. of Wisconsin mm -hmm. will still bring charges on your behalf. It is taken completely out of your hands. Yes. But in court, I said, I don't think I would have gone through with it. I don't think I would have, mm -hmm. you know, cooperated or anything like that if I would have known how much I would have to lose. I said, you know, maybe in a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, I will think differently. I still struggle with that. But the message I want to leave with everybody, especially Mennonite women young girls that are still in the setting is even though it does not look worth it 
at the moment or a year later or two years later, it does give you a sense of freedom. It does give you a voice. Even if while you're talking, while you're moving forward in life, you still feel like you lost a lot. You do feel better after it's out. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. It'll be okay in the long run. Someday it will be okay. If it isn't okay now, and it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Oh my God, that statement. It really is okay not to be okay. So thank you, Kay, for coming and being a guest and talking about your book and giving us all of this insight into your story and sharing your story openly with us. It is a very powerful story. And I would hope that each of you listeners goes out and pre-orders Kay's book as soon as it is available. I will share the links on my platforms. But I want to tell you also before I go that this book is a must read for mental health providers and anyone who really comes in contact with plain Mennonites. Part of the reason I say that is because Kay describes her various Mennonite communities and experiences, and she writes openly about her journey through the court system with her church at the time. She describes the aftermath of the violence she experienced at the hands of several abusers and their enablers. Some of the effects of this include becoming a single mom, struggling with suicidal ideation, and living with all of that. And I am extremely, immensely proud of Kay for writing her truth, for getting her child to safety. That takes guts. That takes power. That takes conviction. That takes internal strength and fortitude. And I want to celebrate Kay for that. Because providing safety for your child and for yourself when you're in a situation like that where your brain feels like scrambled eggs, for example, that that takes something that many people don't have. But she's doing the hard things. She's protecting her kid. She's doing the things she can to learn better. She's seeking support because she is a warrior and she is a fighter. So anyways, thank you all for listening. If you have enjoyed this program, please know that it was brought to you by the Misfit Amish Patreon subscribers and the Misfit Amish. And we will be convening again shortly to have a discussion on, well, I think March 12th, to have a discussion on um, stereotyping. If you'd like to join our discussions on stereotyping, we are welcoming people from all walks and ways of life to join those discussions. Our next one would be on Sunday, March 12th. See y'all later. Have a good one.